How are you this morning? Come on, that's a little bit better. I think we can do better than that, though. I said good morning, church. How are you this morning? Incredible. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. My name is Mac. My wife, Chelsea, and I have been, uh, we moved here about a year ago, uh, right in the middle of, of all the craziness. We made the move over here to Bowling Green. Uh, I preached here to, in 2014, a long time ago. We moved here. We were looking for houses. I was like, baby, I think I preached up here somewhere, and went back through my emails and found Tim's phone number, called him, connected, and I'm so glad we did. We've been uh, coming here ever since last summer, and we couldn't be uh, more uh, blessed by uh, the church here and by uh, Tim, and it's just a blessing to me for every Sunday to come in to a church where I know that my pastor is going to preach the word, and so I'm grateful for that. And just by your response, I can already tell that you're going to live up to your reputation this morning. All I've heard all morning is just wait till 11. So here I am, and here we are. So let's do this together. If you've got a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Open up to Matthew chapter 5. I get the distinct privilege to crisscross the country and proclaim the name of Jesus everywhere I go. And so uh, I'm grateful just coming off a week in northwest Arkansas with uh, high school and middle school students, and God moved in crazy ways there, as he has all summer long. And so uh, I'm excited to see what he does this morning in church. So as we look this morning to Matthew chapter 5, you guys having having been coming here for a long time, you know uh, that that what we're diving into this morning is, is a very well-known text from Jesus himself where, where he preached. The, the first ever sermon that Jesus preaches we see right here is in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And so you guys know where we're going, but in order to understand completely where we're going, we've got to see where we've come from. And so what I want to do is I want to take us back to Matthew chapter 4. And what we see in chapter 4 is Jesus is coming straight out of, the, straight out of being tempted by Satan into calling his disciples. And this morning, I just want to look at this idea of what it looks like to actually follow after Jesus. Uh, The sermon title for this morning is simply this, the choice is yours. And the reality is, is that, that it's your choice every single day when you wake up, you have two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. You have those two choices. And so we begin to see that Jesus is very passionate about what it looks like to actually follow after him. And we see that as he begins to set the stage for the first sermon that he would ever preach. And please know this this morning, church, that God does nothing by accident. Do you believe that this morning? That God does nothing by by accident. There are no mistakes. And that includes as Jesus begins to set the stage to preach the sermon this morning. And so we go back to Matthew chapter 4. We see that he's, he's been tempted and tried in every which way. And then we see in verse 18, he begins to call his disciples. Check it out. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. If you're there, say, I'm there. Come on, 11. You can do better than that. If you're there, say, I'm there. Here we go. Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Verse 19. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Two months later, they left their nets and followed after him. Is that what your Bible says? No, what does it say? Immediately or at once. At once they followed after him, right? Verse 21, and going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called, uh, mending their nets, and he called them. Verse 22, and two weeks later, they left their boat and their father and followed after him. Is that what your Bible says? Yes or no? 
No, what does your Bible say? Immediately or at once, they left their, their net and their father and followed after him. I don't know if you've caught the trend here, but what's happening is these, there's these four men, these two sets of brothers are, 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 are participating in the activity that, that brings in income for their family. That is that they are at work right now. They, these aren't fishermen like, oh, I got a lazy Saturday. I'm going to go down to the creek or, or down to the lake and throw a pole in the water. These are fishermen that literally their livelihood is based upon how many fish they can bring into the boat. That's their livelihood. And so now all of a sudden, you got this dude in some Jerusalem cruisers that is just walking down the street just going, hey, uh, listen, uh, come follow me. And they leave their place of work to go and follow him. Now, I don't pretend to know what every person in the room does for a living, but I think it would be weird maybe if you were to go into work tomorrow, Monday morning, and you were to be sitting at your desk, and all of a sudden somebody comes by and goes, come on, let's go, come follow me. And you were to pack up your desk, go home, Tell your family, hey, listen, uh, I know this doesn't, make, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Somebody was here, and they just told me I got to come follow them. So uh, we'll see you next, next year, next week. I'm not really sure where we're going or what time I'll be home, but I got to follow him. They'd think you're crazy, would they not? But make no mistake about it, Jesus is beginning to set the stage for, for, for the greatest sermon that he'll ever preach. And he's doing so by calling these men out of their livelihood to follow after him. And remember that as we dive into verse 23 because there's going to be a stark contrast between that and what begins to happen in verse 23. Check out what happens in verse 23. And he went through all of Galilee. How much of Galilee? All of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. How many diseases? Every disease, every affliction among the people, verse 24. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria. How much of Syria? All. So he's famous throughout all of Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them all. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So now you've got these great crowd of people. And as I begin to preach this morning, you're going, uh, Mac, here's the deal. You talk way too fast. And here's what I'd say to you. I will slow down, but the service will be a lot longer this morning. So I don't think that you want that. So, so just let's try to listen in a hurry because we got, as Smokey and the Bandit said, we got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So notice that, that, that now all of a sudden his fame has spread throughout all of Syria. His fame is spread throughout. Why? Because he's healing all the diseases, all the afflicted are being brought to him. I mean, think about it in this terms. If somebody were to pull up in the parking lot that's across the street in, in, in an RV and they were to go, hey, uh, listen, uh, they were to come in here and they would go, hey, uh, I'm, I'm healing various diseases and afflictions over here. Why don't you come get in? It'd be a little weird, right? It'd be a little weird. We go, oh, man, say no to drugs, right? But, but eventually one of you would go, you know what? I can't get my kid to mind at home. I'm going to take him over there. Whatever this dude's offering, I bet that's going to happen. And all of a sudden, they heal your child, and now your child is obedient, right? Or, or, or you got some sickness at home, and, and you go, okay, well, well maybe uh, let me bring that child that's sick, and you bring him over. And listen, my grandmother, you'll, you'll hear about her a little bit later, uh, but, but she had um, 
she had dementia the last several years of her life. And I'm just telling you, as, as weird and as crazy as it would be, if there was somebody that was, that was here offering, offering to heal somebody, I would probably go and, and see them. And so eventually what happens is you guys go take people to get healed over there, and then they get healed. And, and all of a sudden, you're, you're posting it on Facebook, right? You're on, you're, on, you're on Instagram or on Twitter or whatever else you happen to be on, and you're talking about it. And then all of a sudden, people are believing that it's actually true. And then, and then they're bringing people over there. And then all of a sudden, oh, Nashville hears about about it, and they're bringing people there. Then all of Tennessee hears about it, and they're bringing people up to get healed here in Woodburn, Kentucky. And then all of Kentucky hears about it, and they're healed. And so eventually, what you've got is hundreds, if not thousands, of people coming here to Woodburn, Kentucky to get healed. So this is not abnormal, right, that Jesus would do this, but make no mistake about it, he's very intentional in this. He's very intentional in, 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 in lining up the contrast between four men who have given everything that they have to go follow Jesus and, and this great crowd of people who are merely following Jesus for don't miss it, for what he could do for them. And so you've got people that are following Jesus because of who he is, and then you've got people who are following Jesus because of what he does. And so the choice is yours this morning. You see, the choice that you have to make is, am I actually going to follow Jesus for who he is, or am I just following him because of what he can do for me? And the pandemic that's been alive in the church in America for the last decade or so is not a pandemic that is that is a virus that can't be seen, but instead it's the pandemic of ourselves. That we would rather live for us and do what we want to do when we want to do it and go wherever we want to go than we had to do whatever it is that God was going to ask us to do. We would rather live for ourselves than live for him. And all this the, the committed versus the crowd, all that reminds me of a movie I used to watch growing up. Has anybody ever seen the movie uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Anybody ever seen that? Let me see your hands if you've seen that. Yeah, come on, a lot of us. See, there's a version in 1971. I think it's probably better than the one that came out that's newer. The one newer is kind of creepy, right? But, but universally, there's one person that's, that's seen as the antagonist of the story, Right? Universally, it's all seen that Willy Wonka is the antagonist of the story, right? I mean, he's the, he's the weird dude who won't let anybody in, who then, who then sends out tickets as if people want to come to his house and, and hang out with him, right? And so the, he puts all these tickets out, and, and he's just a weird guy. And he sees the antagonist of the story, kind of mean, uh, kind, of, uh, kind of like you don't really want to hang out with him. He's just kind of odd. And universally, he's been seen as the antagonist. But this morning, I want to challenge that aspect. I believe he's actually a different antagonist right? I want you to understand who I think the antagonist is. You guys remember the main character of the story, right? Charlie Bucket. Charlie Bucket's a poor kid, right? He grew up, the, the, the family didn't have much money. They lived in one, a, a one-room shack, right? And he lived in the one-room shack with, with both of his grandparents who all four happened to be bedridden, right? You remember that? Just one big bed in the middle of the, middle of the house, middle of the shack. Charlie's mom would make them Cabbage soup because they were so poor, that's all they could afford. Charlie's dad worked at the tooth, toothpaste factory, and then his job got replaced by robots. And so Charlie's out doing all he can, trying to earn money, but it's, it's just he and his dad. His mom's got to take care of the grandparents who can't do anything, right? But then you remember what happens, right? 
Willie Wonka puts out the tickets, and Charlie's spending some, sending some, some, some of his change to get some of the chocolate for a chance at some ticket, and then all of a sudden he opens up this pack, and there happens to be what? The golden ticket, right? And he comes home to the house, and he is, he's just, he's elated. He's like, man, you guys won't believe what's happened. You won't, you won't believe what's going on. I got a golden ticket. You won't believe it. And it tells me I get to, I get to take somebody. And, and, and dad's trying to find work, and mom, well, she can't go. And so he doesn't have anybody to take. And then, and then we find, find out who the true antagonist of the story is. You guys ready for this? Here's who the true antagonist of the story is. Check this out. That's Grandpa Joe. Grandpa Joe is the true antagonist of the story. You go, Mac, Grandpa Joe's so sweet. How could he be the antagonist? Oh, yeah, sure, he's sweet, and he's, and he's bedridden. He can't be bothered to earn a living, right? He's bedridden until Charlie finds the golden ticket, right? And then when Charlie finds the golden ticket, Grandpa Joe, he gets up out of bed, and he goes, you know what? I think my leg works today. My leg works. Listen, now I can't be bothered to go earn a living to go, to go make money. I can't be bothered to do that. But you know what? Here we are. Look at this. Woo! I can go. Not only does he walk, but then what does he do? He begins to dance. Man, they sing a song. They dance around. I haven't moved like this in years. Well, that's funny, Grandpa Joe. You haven't moved like this in years. What a jerk, man. You know? He can't be bothered to do anything helpful to the family until Charlie gets his ticket to go to the chocolate factory, and then all of a sudden, man, he finds out he actually can move. He actually could get up out of bed. He actually can do stuff. And don't tell me he couldn't work, man. You remember when he got in the chocolate factory and they ate those things that made him fly up in the air? Dude, if you can fly up in the air from eating some chocolate, you can go to work, okay? But that's Grandpa Joe. That's the antagonist of the story. And the truth of the matter is, for many of us in this room, that's exactly how we treat our relationship with Jesus. Oh, God, you want me to go over there? Wait, you want me to say that to my coworker? No, I don't think I can. You want me to do that thing? You want me to go to that place? You want me to move my family across the country? No, no, no. I don't think I can do that. You want me to help my neighbor with that? No, my neighbor's weird. I don't even, no, I don't think I can do that. Oh, we're signing up for a mission trip? Oh, oh we're, we're signing up to go to camp? Sign me up, Jesus. I love following you. You know, when it comes to, to something that's going to benefit us or something that we're going to get to go to a cool place or do a, do a cool thing, man, yeah, sign me up, Jesus. I love following after you. But when it comes to, to something that, 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 that maybe requires something of us, man, we're just not, we're not really ready to sign up for it. We're not ready to go and do it. And so the question that you have to ask yourself this morning, the question that you must answer this morning, is I'm a part of the crowd as we see that here is following Jesus. Or am I actually committed to everything that he is? And everything that he asked me to do, to go wherever he asked me to go and to do whatever he asked me to do. Because you see right here, that's exactly what happens as we move into Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1 says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, I personally believe, and I, I'm not alone in this belief, but I personally believe that, 
that through the next two chapters as Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount, that he's not talking to the crowd of people. I'm of the personal belief that Jesus is actually speaking to his disciples because what he's doing is he's unpacking and unfolding what it actually looks like to follow after him. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you know that the mount that Jesus was standing on to give this, to give this sermon on the mount is, it's not like Mount Everest. It's just a, it's, it's more like a hill. But God designed the acoustics in such a way that literally today, if somebody were to stand up there and, and begin to, to, to talk in a, a way they would talk to, to, to people can be heard down the mountain and all between the area between there and the, the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus, I believe, was super intentional in this moment to teach his disciples also knowing he would be overheard by the crowd of people. And Jesus taught them, saying, that's what it says. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. In verse 2, he opened his mouth and he taught them. He taught his disciples, saying. And so this morning, I'd like for us to look at three things from three simple verses this morning. Three things, three characteristics of what it looks like to, follow, to actually follow after Jesus. So what does it really mean to follow after Jesus? I want to give you three things, and we begin right here in verse number three. If you're there, say, I'm there. Come on, you can do better than that if you're there, Sam, there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does it really mean to follow Jesus? Now remember what he's got. He's got a crowd of people at the bottom of the mountain who couldn't even be bothered to climb up the mountain, to exude some effort to go follow Jesus. They couldn't even be bothered to do that. They go, oh, you know what? I'll just stand down here because I know I'll be able to hear him from down here. And then when he starts healing stuff, when he starts doing things that, that actually benefit me, then I will go up near him. When he comes back down here, I'll just wait, I'll just wait down here for him come, to come back down to me. And the only people that followed him up there were those four individuals who had left their livelihood to come and follow after him. <coughs> so what does it mean to have, <coughs> to really follow after Jesus? It means to, point number one, have nothing spiritually. It means to have nothing spiritually. We see that right here in verse three. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Literally translated, he means blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, what it means to be spiritually bankrupt is to realize that you have absolutely nothing to offer the God of the universe. You have absolutely nothing to offer the God of the universe. I mean, after all, it was God who the Bible tells us knit us together in our mother's womb, who numbered the hairs on our head, who is the same God. He even knows the ones you've lost since he created you, by the way. He's the same God who numbered the stars in the sky. You don't know how many stars there are in the sky? Our galaxy holds 10 billion stars. Scientists believe, because of the Hubble telescope, that there's 10 billion more galaxies. So that's 10 billion times 10 billion. You, you know how, how, how many that is? That's if every person on the face of the planet had a million books at their house. A million books. Now, I've only got about six books at my house, and only three of them are colored in. You guys will get that on Tuesday. That'll be cool. 
So if every person on the face of the planet had a million books, and every book was as thick as a Webster's Dictionary, there still would not be enough room to write down all the stars, which, by the way, the Bible tells us, he tells us in Isaiah chapter 40, that he has named all those stars and numbered all those stars. So if, if every person on the planet had a million books, and each book was a Webster's Dictionary, there wouldn't be enough pages to write down all the names of all the stars in heaven. But yet our God created them, named them, numbered them, and, and he tells in Isaiah 40 that he doesn't even lose a single one of them. So as I say that to you this morning, why is it that you sit in this place and you just assume that God made some mistake with you? That maybe he just lost his way somewhere with you, that he doesn't really know what he's doing is he's asking you to do something that maybe you just don't really want to do. God does not make mistakes. And he doesn't lose even a single star, much less you. He created you and me. He knit us together in our mother's womb for a purpose, for a reason. And so what he says right here is that for you and for me, if we're actually going to follow after Jesus, like not really just sit in the crowd, but actually follow after Jesus, if we're actually going to do that, what it means is that we've got to, we've got to realize that we have absolutely nothing spiritually. It's not about you and you having something to offer God. You don't have anything to offer God. It's not about your money or your time or your skills or your abilities. Hello, church, that's all God's anyway. You're just a steward of what God's given you. So it's not as if, oh, I have something I can offer God, so I probably need to, I probably need to, I'm gonna enter into this relationship with Jesus because I could probably do something for his kingdom. No, no, no. It's about you entering into a relationship with Jesus. Why? Because you know without him, your life is worthless. But with him, oh, but with him, your life is infinitely valuable. So for you, it's gotta be about Really following Jesus, being committed to who Jesus is, is all about having nothing spiritually. I'll never forget a buddy of mine got married and he was in ministry and his wife, it was a marriage much like mine, his wife is way smarter than he is. She was like a research scientist. She already had the big job that paid a pretty good amount of money and she was already living in the nice house and the car and literally what he brought into that marriage, an ironing board and a TV. You can see at his house, the TV sat on the ironing board, right? In two weeks, man, that was gone. You go, Mac, why would she even marry him? Who would want a dude that has nothing? My answer to that is Jesus. You see, he brought, he realized, he was humble enough to go into that marriage relationship knowing, baby, I ain't got nothing. I got nothing to offer you. So why is it then for us, do we enter into our relationship with Jesus thinking that we owe him, thinking that, thinking that there's something that, that, that we could bring to him? It's the reality that we're spiritually bankrupt, that without him, man, we're worthless, but with him, man, our life is infinitely valuable. And so what does it mean to, to actually follow after Jesus, to really follow after Jesus? It means to have nothing spiritually. That's point number one. Point number two is found right here in verse number two. Blessed uh, are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says right here in verse number four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn for those who shall be comforted. So for us, we not only have nothing spiritually, but point number two, we've got to hurt over our sin. 
You go, Mac, wait, I'm not understanding. I don't really, I can't really quite translate that. He just said that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So, So what do you mean that we heard of our sin? Well, and what does he mean that blessed are us if we mourn? Didn't he tell us that we should be joyful always? So what does he mean that we're blessed if we mourn? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that this morning. What I love about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus lists off some characteristics and qualities that we should possess as true followers of him, and then he spends the next two chapters explaining them to us. And so he begins to explain this in verse number 27. Check this out. Flip over there, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He begins to explain verse number 4. Check it out. He said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, and if, and if your right hand causes you to sin, you should cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your, your whole body go into hell. You go, Mac, what is he saying to me? Are you really telling me that what Jesus wants me to do is if, if I find myself sinning with my eyes, that I should go into the kitchen and get one of those serrated edge grapefruit spoons and gouge my eye out? That if my right hand calls me to sin, that I should go to my garage and get my hacksaw and cut my arm off? Is that literally what you're saying to me, Mac? Because if, if that's what Jesus is saying, man, that's awful drastic. That's exactly his point. His point is that you would so, fall so madly in love with him that you would mourn over the sin in your life. That the sin in your life would hurt you so bad that you're willing to take drastic measures to get rid of it. In the original text, this word mourn is the most painful, most severe form of mourning. You guys all understand there's different forms of mourning, right? Back in 09, I lost my grandmother, the hero of my faith. Shortly after, I lost my first dog, right? Mourned over both of them for sure. But one was slightly more painful than the other, right? And, and so what, what Matthew is, is writing here and what Jesus was saying is blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And, and, and the form of mourning that he's speaking of is the most painful and most severe form of mourning. What Jesus is saying to you is blessed are you if you hurt so much over sin that you're willing to take drastic measures to get rid of it. Tim last week was talking about sexual purity. And he said some things that probably left most of you leaving this place going, man, what he was talking about, getting rid of Netflix and maybe getting rid of the internet at my house and getting rid of my phone that has internet, just getting a phone that doesn't have internet. Man, I don't know if I can do all that. All that's drastic. Yeah, that's exactly the point. That's exactly what God's calling us to. That for you and for me, if we're born-again believers, if we're actual followers of him, we're willing to take drastic measures to get rid of the sin in our life. It's not some figurative language for us. It's actual language, actually God calling us to do certain things that actually seem radical to the world. But to us, it'll just make a whole lot of disciples. The sad truth this morning is that for many of us, We've gotten so used to relationship that we don't actually understand that we're really in a 
or we got so used to religion that we don't actually understand that what Jesus calls us to is a relationship. We're so used to our religion. We're so used to coming to church on Sunday morning and that just kind of being it and us just kind of dusting our hands and going, well, that's it, man. I went to church. I did my thing. Now, the rest of the week, I'm going to live for myself. No, no, no. You got to understand there's two choices on the shelf every single day. Two choices on the shelf, pleasing God and pleasing self. Every single day, there's two choices on your shelf, pleasing God or pleasing him, not just on Sunday morning. But we're so, we're so used to our religion that we're not even willing to give up our religion for our relationship. We're so steeped in traditionalism that we're just doing what we're used to do, used to doing, instead of understanding that what God actually calls us to is to walk in right relationship with him on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. You see, what Jesus desires for you is, is not that you, like, I love pizza. Anybody love pizza? Anybody love pizza? Yeah, absolutely. I just, you know, you're going to be real hungry after the service. You just don't even know it yet. But, but, but if our life was like a pizza, we give some slices to work, some slices to our family, some slices to our friends, and to be honest, whatever's left over, we kind of give to Jesus. But what actually following after Jesus means is not that he's just a slice among other slices in our life, but actually following after Jesus means that he is, he's not a slice. He's the lens in which we see all of our slices through. Jesus becomes the lens in which we see our life through. That he's the lens in which we see the way that we interact with our coworkers through. He's the lens in which we see how we treat our kids through. He's the lens in which we see how we treat our friends and our family through. He's the lens in which we get frustrated how we respond to that person that frustrated us. Jesus desires to be the lens in which you see your life through, not just another portion of your life. He's not just a box that you take off the shelf and then place back on the shelf. Jesus desires to be the lens in which you see your life through. That's what it means to truly follow after Jesus. The problem becomes for many of us when we look at stories like this where these disciples were, these disciples were literally doing one thing and then Jesus called them to follow him, and they left all that and followed after him. It was a real dramatic experience for them. They were doing this yesterday, and now today I'm not. For many of us, our conversion experience doesn't really change our life like that. For many of us, it was just kind of, uh, it was just kind of like, like many of our story is probably similar. We probably got saved in VBS when we were six. Or we grew up in church, right? We grew, it's just kind of what we always did, and I just, just at one point in time, like it just became real to me, Right? We don't have this dramatic story. And for many of us, we would say, man, if I just had this dramatic story, man, it would be so much easier for me to live for the Lord. If I just had this story that I could tell about, man, I used to be like this, and now I look like this, that's tangible evidence as to what I believe. And we go, man, if I just had this story that I could tell. Well, church, can I tell you it has nothing to do with who you were, who you used to be? Your relationship with Jesus has nothing to do with who you used to be. In fact, it's all about what you do after your conversion experience. Let me show you this right here. Throw this quote up on the screen if you've got it. Yeah. The dramatic nature of your encounter isn't determined by the severity of your past, but instead by the sincerity of your pursuit. The dramatic nature of your encounter with Jesus isn't determined by the severity of your past, but instead by the sincerity of your pursuit. We all know the life of Paul, right? Many of us that grew up in church, you know what happened with Paul. Paul used to be Saul. He used to kill Christians. Can I just tell you something about Paul? Paul actually used to be a religious follower. 
He was, so, he was so bent on keeping the way that he was going to kill those people who, who felt like somebody had come to, uh, to fulfill the law, right? And they were following a man, and, 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 and so he was willing to kill them. He was, Paul was actually climbing the religious ladder when he stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7. He was climbing the religious ladder. He was doing what he thought was religiously right for him to do. But then in Acts chapter 9, Paul understood that it's actually not about religion, but it's about a relationship. It's about a relationship. That actually following after Jesus is is the point in which we die to religion. We choose a relationship instead of religion. That's the point in which Our walk with Jesus begins, so the dramatic nature of your encounter isn't determined by the severity of your past, but instead by the sincerity of your pursuit. We don't, we don't, think about Paul's life. If Paul hadn't been sincere in his pursuit after Jesus, we wouldn't even know about who he used to be. We wouldn't even know that he used to kill Christians. He'd be a blip on the radar, man. Nobody would know about him. But because Paul was sincere in his pursuit after Jesus, we have 17 books of the New Testament written by Paul. Your life and my life have been impacted by the life of Paul. All because he was sincere in his pursuit. So it has nothing to do about the cool story that you used to be somebody and now you're somebody else. It's all about the sincerity of your pursuit. When you leave this place on Sunday mornings, man, does the word of God pierce to your heart? Does it change the way you interact with people that week? Or is it just something you talk about for four or five minutes and then go on to live who, live your life however you want to live it, doing whatever you want to do? How sincere is your pursuit after God? So what does it really mean to follow Jesus? It means to, point number one, have nothing spiritually. Point number two, it means to hurt over sin. It means to hurt over our sin. We hurt so much that we take drastic measures to get rid of that sin. And then we see right here and. Verse number six, you see in verse five, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's pretty self-explanatory. And then he says, that's just a characteristic of a believer as somebody that's this meek. And then in verse six, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So what he tells us this morning, what does it mean to really follow Jesus? Point number one, have nothing spiritually. Point number two, to hurt over sin, and point number three, to hunger for spiritual satisfaction. Hunger for spiritual or true satisfaction. You as a believer, if you're actually following after Jesus, man, you'll find yourself actually hungering after his word. You know, it's funny because if I ask you how well you know your, your, your spouse in the room or how well you know uh, your, your friend or, 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 or whatever, you would say that you know them well. And the way you know them well is because you spend so much time with them. But if I ask you when you came in here in the room, how many of you know Jesus, you would all say that you know him. But it's funny because we don't find ourselves spending any time with him. It would be silly for me to think that you know your spouse so well if you lived in in two different countries and you never hardly ever talked to each other. But because you 
you live in close proximity and you spend a lot of time with each other, I would assume that you guys know each other fairly well. And, and I would assume that, that if you've got a best friend around the area, that, that, that you guys spend a lot of time together and you know each other well. And that happens because you spend so much time together. But we don't, we're not willing to spend time that it takes to get to know the God of this universe who saved our soul. And so what does it mean to really follow after Jesus? It means to have nothing spiritual. It means to hurt over our sin. And it means to hunger for spiritual satisfaction. It reminds me of a story. My grandmother, when she died, my mom asked me to, to, to preach at her funeral. My grandmother died in 2009. It was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. I mean, my grandma's a hero of my faith, and she was just a gentle, kind woman. The meanest thing she ever said to me was me and my brother were fighting outside. She came to the door. And she opened the screen door, and she goes, I wish you two would just shut up. And our jaws hit the floor, man. We'd never heard her say something so mean. That was the meanest thing she ever said. So in 2009, when she died, my mom asked me to preach her funeral. I, I spent the next few days just trying to remember stories about my mom, about my, my, about my grandmother, stories of times that we interacted together so I could share those at, at the at the funeral, sounds that made me think about my grandmother and things like that. And I was reminded of a story. My grandmother, when I was little, we used to go spend the night at her house. And one of my favorite things to do with my grandmother, one of our favorite things to do was to go to McDonald's and get two apple pies and a sweet tea. It's just what we did. It was just kind of like our, our little thing to do when I was a kid and would stay at her house. And I was remembering this story about a time that, that when I was in high school, I went to a different church than my parents did. It was a church I ended up getting saved in, and I went to the different church because that's where all the girls went to church, and I figured I needed to be over there with them. And so I went. Amen, brother. So I went. So I went over to that other church, and praise God I did because that's where I ended up getting saved. That youth pastor took me under his wing and mentored and discipled me. But I'll never forget one day I was in high school and I was driving home from that church and uh, I was getting hungry and, and I, I was going to stop somewhere and then I was like, no, we're going to Mama Sarah's house to eat lunch. And then as I was thinking about Mama Sarah's house, I started thinking about all the times that when I was little, particularly when I was 14 years old, I would save my grandmother and I would convince her to let me drive us down to McDonald's, get tail pies and a sweet tea. That was cool because you're not supposed to drive at 14 and so that was awesome. And so I started thinking about that, and as I'm making my way home and about to get to my house, I passed something. What do you think I passed? A McDonald's, absolutely. And so I was like, man, just in honor of Mama Sarah, where we're going for lunch today, I'm just going to pull in there and get two apple pies and a sweet tea. And so that's what I did. I pulled in and got to the order box. Hey, can I take your order? Yeah, you can. I'd like two apple pies and a sweet tea. Would you like anything else? No, I don't think so. How about a 10-piece McNugget? Well, okay, all right, I'll take a 10-piece McNugget. I am kind of hungry. What about a McChicken sandwich? Sure, yeah, I'll take one of those too. Yeah, because I'm kind of hungry. That's it, though. And so I ended up pulling off moments later with a McChicken sandwich, a 10-piece McNugget, and two apple pies and a sweet tea. And so I knew that, that when I got home, my mom was going to be upset if I had eaten before because I was going to ruin my dinner, right? That's what she always told me. And so I knew I had to hammer that stuff on the way home. So there I am sitting in my truck, and I'm just throwing down nuggets two at a time, right? And I'm just eating this chicken sandwich just as fast as I can because mom can't know that I went to McDonald's. And so I got home, and my parents got home shortly after that. We got in the car and made the journey up to my grandmother's church or up to her house, which happened to be just a couple of blocks from her church. 
We got to her house, and my grandmother, it was tradition for us to eat lunch with her on Sundays, and, and most of the time she would fix fried chicken. And that Sunday she was fixing fried chicken, and you could smell it when she, you opened the door. Man, I love those Sundays because she would leave church a little bit early and she'd walk home to her house and she'd pass by our garden and pick vegetables that, mor- that morning for us t- to eat at lunch with the chicken. I mean, you, when I got out, I could just smell it and I went to her house and there she was standing over the skillet. And I'm talking about, this is the best fried chicken on planet Earth, man. It's not like deep fried. It's just like barely fried with a little bit of oil, you know what I'm talking about? And she's just flipping it all the time. You got to watch it or you're going to burn it. It'll burn real easy. So she always told me, I got to watch the chicken. I was like, well, where's it going to go? That's all I used to ask her. I was a jerk. Anyway, so she's there flipping the chicken, and she's got a chicken wing, and she knows that's my favorite because it's got a lot of breading and a little bit of meat, right? She knew I just liked the breading, so she, she put it on the plate for me, and then she divvied up my favorite vegetable that she picked fresh that morning, macaroni and cheese. And so she put that on the plate, and then she fixed me a glass of her sweet tea, and and she put my plate down next to hers because she knew that I liked to hang out with her. And, and so we're sitting there eating. The whole family's eating there together. And, and, you know, I eat a little bit of the chicken and a little bit of the mac and cheese. And she looks over at me and she goes, well, honey, is it not good today? I said, oh, no, Mama Sarah, it's really good. I said, you know that I think you got the greatest fried chicken on planet Earth. She said, yeah, I've heard you tell me that, but you're not really eating much of it today. I said, Mama, sir, can I tell you something? She said, baby, you can tell me anything. I said, you know how we like to go to McDonald's and get two apple pies and a sweet tea? She said, yeah, baby, did you do that this morning? I said, I did, and you won't believe what else they put in my bag. (laughs) I had to tell her that I was so hungry, I got 10-piece McNugget and a McChicken sandwich. And she had this look on her face. I said, Mama, sir, are you disappointed? She said, no, baby, I'm not disappointed. I said, are you mad at me? She said, no, honey, I'm not mad. I said, well, then what is it? She said, I'm just confused. I said, Mama, sir, what are you confused about? She said, well, you tell me I have the greatest fried chicken on planet Earth. I said, Mama, sir, you do. She said, well, I'm just confused as to why you would stop and get some fake chicken if you knew if you just wait just a second, you could have some of the real thing. And I said, Mom, Sarah, you're right. And we kind of laughed. And I was remembering that story back in 2009. I was beginning to write it down. And as I was remembering that story, God spoke to my heart in 2009 as I was writing this down. And God said, Mac, why is it that you continue to snack on the fake things of this earth and attempt to satisfy something, this desire that I've placed in you that only I can satisfy. Why will you continue to snack on these fake things of the earth when if you wait just a second, the Bible tells us our life is but a vapor here today and on tomorrow. If you'll wait just a second, I've got a banquet table of righteousness for you to feast from. He goes, why are you going to continue to snack on the things of this earth that will never satisfy your soul when if you wait just a moment, I'll satisfy your every desire you could ever have. And the reality is true this morning, church, that for many of us, that's all that we do. Man, we're just go throughout our entire life snacking on the things of this earth, just hoping that something's going to satisfy our soul. You want to know the definition of sin? Fulfilling a, God, a God-given desire in a God-forsaken way. 
All we're doing is trying to fill this God-given desire in a God-forsaken way. Church, can I just tell you, we gotta stop snacking on the things of this earth and we're gonna actually follow after Jesus. It means that we have nothing spiritually, that we hurt over our sin, and that we actually hunger for spiritual, true satisfaction. And so the choice truly is yours. The choice truly is yours. Are you going to continue? To follow Jesus from a distance? Are you going to continue to just watch Jesus from a distance? Are you going to be part of the crowd? Or are you going to be part of the committed? Are you going to continue just to follow Jesus for what he can do for you? Which is not actually following Jesus at all? Are you going to say this morning, God, you know what? I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of, of, just, of just following you for what you can do for me. Because you see, these disciples, they gave up their life to follow after Jesus. They gave up everything they had to follow after Jesus. And notice the picture that Jesus painted because he was always teaching. He was always intentional. And so as he's speaking to these disciples, they have the imagery of the crowd of people at the base of the mountain who are only there for what Jesus can do for them. And church, this morning, i got to ask you, are you on top of that mountain with Jesus as he's teaching, or are you just down at the base on the crowd? Because there's only two places you can be. And you can't be at both of them at the same time. You're either in the crowd following Jesus for what he can do for you because it's popular in the Bible Belt of the South or you're committed to who he is and who he desires you to be. And you take sermons like last week, the incredible word that Tim so heavily challenged us with, and you make changes to your life. That's what a true follower does. You know why? Because you hurt over the sin in your life. It's actually responding in a true, meaningful way. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus from up close. A disciple, literally, the way that the way that Jewish custom was for the rabbis to call their disciples, which by the way, at this point, Jesus is just seen as the greatest rabbi ever. And these disciples, here's what you need to know about them. Their, their adversaries, the people that would, that would speak against them, considered them unschooled, ordinary men, according to the book of Acts. Unschooled, ordinary men. So you got these two men who are unschooled and ordinary, and all of a sudden the greatest rabbi on the face of the planet comes walking by me and asks me to follow him. And literally that's how the rabbis would call their disciples, come follow me. It was a privilege reserved for only the best of the best of the best Jewish students, only the smartest and the brightest. And now all of a sudden, the greatest rabbi ever asked me, an unschooled, ordinary man, to follow after him. And the reason they said follow after me is, is the idea is that I would walk so closely behind you that I would wear that your sandals would fling up dust, and I would wear that dust on my shirt. That I would fall, fall so closely behind you that I would wear the dust on my shirt. And so, church, this morning, you got to ask yourself the question: Am I following Jesus so close that I'm wearing the dust on his shirt, on my shirt? Am I part of the committed or am I just at the crowd at the base of the mountain? 
just knowing that, yeah, I may hear a word, but if I just wait a little bit, it'll pass. I may hear him ask me to do something, but if I don't act right now, it'll pass. I'll just wait for Jesus to come back down and do something else for me, and then I'll follow him. The choice is yours. So, Jesus, we love you. We're grateful for you. God, we're grateful for what you've done for us. We're grateful for giving us the choice to choose between following you and actually following after you. God, we know that James would tell us that if we're not actually following after you, that maybe, just maybe, we don't even walk in relationship with you. And so, God, here's the truth this morning. You know and I know that there's people in this room who would say they walk in right relationship with you, but they don't actually do that. And so, God, this morning, I pray that you would save their soul. They would come to the place where they're spiritually bankrupt, where they have nothing spiritually. They would come to the place where they hurt over their sin. And they would come to the place where they hunger for spiritual, true satisfaction, where they desire that. And so, God, move in this place, God, and I pray that we actually respond to your word this morning. And we'll give you praise. It's your holy name I pray. Amen.